Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would speak to us through your word for our encouragement. We pray strengthened by you, knowing your will in your word. We would persevere as followers of Jesus. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive it as your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems very tough on Moses, doesn't it, and harsh of God. Go up, view, die. You will not enter the land. Now, for 40 years, Moses has served faithfully, you know, confronting Pharaoh, receiving from the Lord the ten words on stone, dealing with that grumbling and fractious people, talking to the Lord, praying for them, and always moving towards the land of promise, always looking to the fulfilment of God's promise to bring the people into their own land. That's been his goal for 40 years. Now, he's told he'll be allowed to see that land from Mount Nebo on the east side of the Jordan. At 835 metres, it gives a good view of the land of Israel. But he may not enter it. Oh, he wanted to enter. As he recounts in Deuteronomy 3, he had pleaded with the Lord, Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven and earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. But the Lord said, that is enough. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. The Lord was and continued to be adamant that Moses would not enter, would not lead the people of Israel into the land. Now, if you're anticipating having sympathy with the Olympic athletes uh, when the Tokyo Games are cancelled because of COVID-19, well, you ought to have sympathy for Moses. Not four years preparation, but 40. And just when the games are about to start, he's off the team. So what went wrong? Why was Moses, who has served the Lord so faithfully, denied what would be the crowning glory of his ministry, denied the longing of his heart? Answering that question, it's important. For what Moses did and God's response is a God-given test case that brings into sharp focus key issues in our relating to the living God. Thinking about why Moses cannot enter the land will actually help us understand sin, our sin clearly, <coughs> and the justice of God's judgment on sin. And also to see how much better and how much greater than Moses, Jesus is. And why we and everyone who sins, and that's all of us, needs Jesus. And seeing that, we will hopefully be moved to turn away from sin and hold fast to Jesus for life. So why was Moses denied entry into the promised land? It all goes back to the incident, verse 51, at a place called Meribah Kadesh. There, Moses is said to have broken faith with the Lord and failed to uphold the Lord's holiness. Now, to understand that charge, Let's review what happened at Meribah Kadesh, a stop on Israel's, in Israel's wilderness wanderings. It's recounted in Numbers 20. 
Now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarrelled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates and there's no water to drink. Well, again, the people are complaining, doubting the Lord's goodness and power and competency. And we can understand, can't we? <coughs> I mean, thirst is so compelling and running out of water is a lot more serious than running out of toilet paper. Moses and Aaron turn to the Lord. Right? They went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. And the Lord's instructions are very clear, aren't they? Take the staff but speak to the rock before their eyes so they'll all know, all see the power of the Lord's word. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's entrance just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. <coughs> water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Moses doesn't do what he's been commanded. He vents at the Israelites and he strikes the rock and mercifully water does come out. But the Lord who is the living God who sees and hears has seen and heard what Moses has done and said and pronounces his verdict upon it. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. <coughs> These were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarrelled with the Lord and where he was proved holy amongst them. Do you see Moses' sin? It says the Lord called it a failure to sanctify him, to honour him as holy by doing what he said and that this failure has its origin in disbelief in a failure of faith. Now why was Moses' action a failure to honour the Lord as holy? Well it says God's word can be disregarded. It says that you can substitute what seems right to you, what feels right to you at the time for what God says. That you don't need to serve the Lord his way. No, the Lord should be satisfied with you doing whatever you want instead. In disobeying God, Moses fails to treat God as holy by communicating to all the Israelites that the Lord really is just like all the other gods, the deaf and dumb idols, there to serve our needs and agendas whose word can be obeyed or disobeyed as it suits someone with whom you can deal with on your own terms. Oh, he's not the only almighty or wise creator whose word rules the world whose word brought all that is into being, whose word can bring life-giving water from lifeless stone. Speaking would have honoured 
the Lord, glorified him as the one who alone brings forth the life-giving water, whose word alone is sufficient to meet all their needs. Striking the rock creates the suspicion that the Lord needs Moses' physical intervention, that his word is not enough. Do you see the seriousness of what Moses has done? I mean, it's serious in itself. It's treating the law with contempt, saying that my way, Lord, is just as good as your way, equal really, and so I don't need to do what you say, Lord, because, well, what I want to do is just as good or better. It's no small thing to set aside God's word, his command, for what seems to you the better course. It's actually the expression of Adam's heart, of what Adam chose, to be like God and so to treat the living God as if we and he are equals or even his superiors. But its seriousness increases when you think of who Moses is. I mean, he's the one the Lord has put over his people. He is the one who has seen the Lord's glory. Now the one entrusted with establishing the Lord's rule over his people by his word, the laws and statutes that God gave through Moses, now that one has taught that the Lord need not rule, that his word can be disregarded. Now the one who most knows God's unique glory has witnessed it on the mountain, has communicated that the Lord can be treated like a dumb idol. That message would be death to the Lord's people. It actually threatens their very existence as a distinctive people of God who have life only as they trust and obey the Lord, as they live by the word that comes forth from the Lord's mouth. It's no small thing to set aside God's word, his command for what seems to you the better course, especially if you're in a position of leadership. In Deuteronomy 32, this failure to treat the Lord's name as holy is labelled as breaking faith. And the word has the sense of acting faithlessly, treacherously. It's a word that can be used of an adulterous wife. Moses' action has betrayed the trust the Lord has placed in Moses to maintain his holiness, the reality of his unique being amongst his people, the trust the Lord has placed in Moses to maintain his rule through his word over his people. Seeing the seriousness of Moses' sin, do you now see the justice and necessity of his punishment? The message Moses' behaviour gives has to be counted if the people are to live as the Lord's people. And because Moses has behaved just like that generation of Israelites who came to the border of the Promised Land that first did not enter, the generation that was sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they had all died in the wilderness, died without entering the land. Because his sin is like theirs, his sentence must match theirs. You see, that generation didn't believe the Lord could bring them into the land and so they refused at first to enter. That is, they thought the law was no match for the gods of Canaan. Their disobedience stemmed from disbelief and dishonoured the holy God, the only God, and it excluded them from the land. Moses, sharing that disbelief and disobedience of the Lord's word, shares the Lord's sentence. Shares the sentence. God shows no partiality, no favouritism. So Moses too will perish in the wilderness. And he 
deserves to. For living in God's presence, in God's place, is only for those who trust the Lord and acknowledge him as Lord by doing what he says. You can't come in or bring others in where you will not trust the Lord and do what he says, where when it comes to the crunch, you will choose your way over the Lord's way. But perhaps you're not convinced about the Lord's treatment of Moses. I mean, one slip-up after a lifetime of service, it seems a bit severe. Surely, you think, if he had a good lawyer, he could have got off, had the sentence overturned. So you think of the way our inner lawyer often argues away the seriousness of our disobedience. Moses was provoked. Well, there's no doubt the people of Israel were a difficult, complaining bunch. Moses had probably had a gutful, and who knows, it's probably disturbed his sleep, he's got lower impulse control, you know. But the sins of others don't justify or excuse our own sin. I can't say I'm justified in angry, abusive talk to others because they've provoked me. We always have to speak the truth in love. Oh, someone being unreliable doesn't excuse me from keeping my word. We're not to repay, we're told evil with evil. You are responsible for your own actions. And so you have to give up trying to make others responsible for the wrong you do. And how we feel is not the measure of what's expected. What God commands is for our good always. And that's the case whatever we're feeling. Israel's sin and Moses' anger is no good reason to disobey the holy God. This excuse is just a way of, to legitimise keeping ourselves central, where our circumstances and feelings determine what is right and wrong, what the living God can expect of us. It's actually just the idolatry of self. Well, here's another one. No harm was done. The water still came out of the rock. Everyone got something to drink. I mean, I know I was driving fast, but no harm was done, didn't hit anybody. I know I said things I shouldn't have in the heat of the moment, but they're big people. No harm was done. I know I didn't turn up as I said I would, but Bill or Mary filled in. No harm was done. No harm was done. Actually, when you say that, you make God's kindness and mercy that stops others suffering from your sin into a reason to ignore what God says. And it's so short-sighted. Harm was done and is done by sin. In Moses' case, the people were taught that it's okay to disregard the Lord, that the Lord was like the dumb idols, and if they'd acted believing that, they would have been destroyed. Oh, in the speeding case, you're actually teaching those kids sitting in the back that it's okay to disobey the law of the land with angry and offensive words, that it's okay to be rude or that words don't really matter and that's a dreadful law. Oh, by not turning up, you erode trust in the community. Again, this is just substituting your judgment, your assessment of what matters for God's. It's the idolatry of self. But we think, look at all the good Moses had done. God owes him. God should cut him a little bit of slack. And we think that of ourselves too, don't we? We go to church. 
give to charity, we're good at our job or a consistent provider for the family. And so if I'm occasionally a bit angry, or I let, it, let off steam with a bit of gossip, or I allow myself that bit of porn or that little bit of unforgiveness, God should just overlook it. Especially as God really hasn't delivered on that better job or that better health or on that partner I wanted. God kind of owes me. We can think that to ourselves. God does not owe us for our obedience. Obedience to his good commands is what we owe him always. Our life is his gift. The world we live in is his gift. He sustains them both. What he deserves and expects is that you do what he says, you live by his word, which is our life, all the time. You have never done anything beyond what you were already required to do. You have never put God in your debt. And that is true whatever our circumstances and calling. You might be caring for a sick spouse or child, sharing the gospel with hostile workmates, carrying the weight of being responsible for the employment of hundreds. But God doesn't owe you. They're the circumstances he's given you in which you can honour him by your obedience. What he commands us is for our good. We never put him in our debt. Thinking God should overlook what we call our small failings because in other areas we do what God says is presumption. It's saying that you can define the conditions of your relationship with the living God. Again, it is idolatry of self. And in the end, I think this is the issue, in the end, in our hearts, we think God shouldn't take himself so seriously. I mean... Why should people doing what he says matter here to him so much? I mean, why can't he you know, give a little bit of space in the universe for others to do things the way they want? Well, listen to yourself when you're thinking that. Think about you, who probably, like me, have trouble running your own life, managing your own relationships and work. You are saying that there are areas where God should bow to your wisdom and not insist on his. You, like me, who probably have trouble getting things done right, whether it's your computer or your leaking tap, you are saying that God should entrust a part of his world to your power and not govern with his almighty power that always achieves his good purpose. You're saying that God should set aside his word the word that brought the universe into being, the word that sustains the universe, the word that can raise the dead, be your word. That God should have as low a view of his own honour as you have. That God, the creator, almighty and infinite, should share your estimate, creature, finite, sinful, of himself. Actually, that's idolatry idolatry of self. And our idolatry is death. For we are sold to death. And in all our ways and words, we are enmeshed in death. In God alone is life. He alone has the power to create from nothing and to give life to the dead. It's actually good, his word 
rules. You cannot excuse Moses' sin and you cannot excuse your own. The attempt to do so just reveals our own sinful hearts that we think our word should rule, not the Lord's. That the way we see things is the way the Lord should see things. Moses' sin is serious. It is inexcusable and it deserves being excluded from the land of promise. And our sin, our choosing to do what we want, not what God tells us to do, to believe we know better than God what should be done, that's also serious and inexcusable. And if Moses' sin, this one sin, deserves death, deserves being excluded from God's presence, from living in his land, then what future could we have? Because we've all sinned like Moses, and unlike Moses, we've done it more than once. And yes, <clears throat> that is especially true of us believers who gather week by week. You see, <coughs> Moses' sin is the sin of those who know God's will and don't do it, and that's us. Love your neighbour, but there are times when we selfishly cut in on them in traffic or ignore their needs or take and don't give. Forgive, yet yeah, there are times when we nurse resentment, choose to keep a record of wrongs. I'll speak only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it will benefit them. Yet harsh and unkind words come out of our mouths. Deny yourself, says Jesus, and come after me. Yet we let other things than loyalty to Jesus come first and determine our priorities. Not all the time. Or most of the time, like Moses, we try and do what's right. We enjoy living in relationship with the Lord. But if this one sin excludes Moses, justly excludes Moses, what hope is there for the rest of us? For Moses' sin is a type of all our sin. What hope is there that we could come to what the Lord has promised us in the gospel, the resurrection to the new heaven and earth, where we live at peace with the Lord in his presence? Who can bring us into his presence? Moses was disqualified. That task was left to Joshua, but as the author of Hebrews says, Joshua did not give the people the rest the Lord had promised his people. He couldn't bring them to live at peace with God as Israel's history of rebellion, of turning away from the Lord, sadly shows. Not Moses, not Joshua can bring us to live in God's presence. Sinners themselves, they can't remove the offence of our sin. So left to ourselves, we and all humanity would be without hope. No hope in ourselves. No hope in our doing good. No hope in our good life. But Deuteronomy, as you notice, is a book that ends with hope. Go up, view, die is not the last word. Not the last word about Moses. And disappointment is not the last word Moses speaks. You heard him speak that blessing, expressing confidence that God will bring this sinful people into the land. Even as he knows and feels his own exclusion, Moses' hope is in the Lord, the holy God, the unique God. There's no one like the God of Jeshurun and of Israel. His hope is in the Lord, whose strength never falters and whose purpose never wavers, the eternal God. His hope is that the Lord will keep his promise, be faithful always.
As people like Moses who have failed to uphold God's holiness, who have acted unfaithfully, our hope must be in the Lord too. The Lord who alone can bring sinful people into his presence. And you and I can hope in the Lord because Moses' failure to enter to enter and bring the people in is actually meant to point us to Jesus, who is far greater than Moses, who has entered into the Lord's presence himself and who can bring his people to live with him in the Lord's presence forever. In fact, Moses' failure tells us that it's only the Lord Jesus who can bring us in because he is greater in himself, his work is greater, his gift is greater. You heard in the reading the author of Hebrews contrasting Jesus and Moses. It's like the difference between the builder of a house and the house, between a servant and a son. I hear the apostle John speak of Jesus and Moses. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Jesus is greater. He is the word become flesh, God and man, God with us. What Moses saw on the mountain, Jesus is the glory of the Father. The eternal word become flesh, come to save. Jesus can do what Moses could not because Jesus' life is from the Father and his heart, unlike all Adam's children, is to do the Father's will. And Jesus does not grasp for equality with God, doesn't struggle to substitute his way for God's way. No, he is God. And he shows that by being the son who always loves the father and humbles himself to do the father's will. He never breaks faith. Jesus is incomparably greater and Jesus' obedience is greater. You see, Moses, by believing and obeying God's word, was asked to bring water from a rock by that word. Now, what might Moses have risked by obeying God? <laughs> what was he risking if God didn't deliver? Perhaps a dent in his dignity or a slight increase in the anger of the crowd. Jesus, believing and obeying his father, is asked to go to the cross to bring life from death, exaltation from humiliation, the triumph of love from the focused expression of hate. And what does he put on the line by his trusting obedience? By his saying, I will in the garden, when every molecule of his body was saying, I don't want this. What was Jesus risking? His precious life, permanent shame, being crushed by the cruel hatred of his enemies. Everything was laid on the line to uphold the Father's holiness. Jesus has asked for more. And Jesus delivers life from death, exaltation as God's son from abandonment and shame, the triumph of the love of God over proud human hate. And he delivers because he never breaks faith. He trusts his father, trusts his word will be fulfilled. He always upholds God's holiness. 
that he is the only creator who can do all he wills, who never does wrong, is always faithful, righteous and just, whose word is life. Whether it's in the wilderness where he answers each temptation with the word of God, the word that is always true, where he commits to doing God's work, God's way. Whether it's in the garden, where faced with training in the cup of God's wrath as the way given by God the Father to save his people, he commits himself to obeying the Father, to doing God's work, God's way. Or whether finally it's on the cross. We're invited to come down. Come down, we'll believe you're the Messiah. Invited to flee the pain and shame and show in that way that he's God's Christ. He chooses to hang there and suffer and die. He does God's work God's way. And he's greater. His work is greater and his gift is greater. Grace and truth says John, the grace that forgives and gives the spirit to all who believe, the life of the age to come. Oh, truth, the true and faithful promise of eternal life for all who believe, his words are the words of God. In Hebrews' words, his gift is the holiness that fits us for God's holy presence. His gift is to wash us clean of the stain of our sin by his sacrificial blood exalted to the Father. Now at his right hand in his resurrection body, Jesus has gone in. He has entered God's presence. And he, having gone before us, can bring us into the Lord's presence, having atoned for all our sin. He can bring us to live forever in the new heaven and earth. He can even forgive those presumptuous sins, the sins of those who know him. Sins like Moses. But no one else can. No one else can forgive. No one else can bring us in Jesus alone. So we should be confident in him, the son who is the always faithful one, who always upholds God's holiness. Confidence in the, confident in the power of his obedient death to deal with all our sin even those we've sinned after we've come to know the truth. Confident in him. And we should hold fast to him. Not slip back into relying on our own goodness, for we have none. Not slip back into excusing sin, for our excuses are empty. Not waver at the cost of being faithful, for there's no one else and no other way If Moses couldn't make it on his own, if his sin excluded him, you have no hope on your own. It's only by following Jesus that we can come to what God has promised his saved people. So look to Jesus, see his unique greatness and trust him and follow him for life. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you teach us through Moses' failure to enter how we can enter. Uh, We thank you that as we see Moses' sin, you show us your sin, our sin, but you also point us to the one who has no sin, the Lord Jesus, who never broke faith, who always upheld your holiness by obeying your will and going to die for us on the cross. We thank you for him.
And we pray that we will grow in understanding of what he's done, of his greatness and his goodness. We pray that we will grow in confidence in him. And gracious Father, please move us to always hold fast to him. We ask this in his name. Amen.